how he knew he wanted to be a priest when he was just 13 years old, how he was able to become the principal of a Catholic high school at age 31, the difference between religious and spiritual, what it means to believe in God, why self-conversion is so important, and so much more coming right up. This is episode number 209 with Auxiliary Bishop of the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Atlanta and my high school principal, Bishop Joel Conson. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. I'm here because you want to be the best version of yourself, but there are so many things that you need to do to get there. Because it's overwhelmingly complicated, it's easy to lose focus, easy to lose a sense of direction, which is why so many people end up becoming less than their potential. That's why I create videos, podcasts, and programs to keep you on track to your best you. Go to nickcarrier.com to learn more. Today, I bring you one of the most unique episodes I've ever done with the most reverend Bishop Joel Conson. Bishop Conson is the auxiliary bishop of the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Atlanta. He's the former longtime for 26 years head of Marist School. He's been a priest for 41 years and a member of the Society of Mary. But this is so special to me because Bishop Conson was my high school principal. In this episode, you'll learn about how he knew he wanted to be a priest at age 13 the importance of stepping into something before you're actually ready for it, and the difference between religious and spiritual. Whether you're a person of faith or a person of religion or not, this episode will still bring you value. As you're listening, make sure you tag me on Instagram at carrier underscore best you to let me know that you're listening. Monday mornings can be the bane of your existence. It can seem impossible to get motivated on a Monday morning, but not if you receive my Monday Motivation Trio 111 newsletter. Every Monday, I send out one motivational quote, one inspiring video, and one workout to get your week started off with a bang. Just go to nickcarrier.com slash 111-newsletter to get this in your inbox every Monday morning. Again, it's nickcarrier.com slash 111-newsletter. Without further ado, here's to getting closer to your best you with the one and only Bishop Joel Constant. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. I am super excited today to have maybe one of the most unique episodes that I've ever had on this show. I have the one and only, the most reverend, Bishop Joel Conson with me today. Bishop Conson, I just want to say thanks so much for spending the time with me today. Nick, glad to be able to do it. Thank you. Of course. Yeah, I've been uh, looking to make this happen for a little bit and so happy that we're able to be able to take the time to sit down here and to introduce you a little bit. Bishop Joel Conson is the Auxiliary Bishop of the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Atlanta and the former longtime for 26 years head of Marist School in Atlanta, which is where I went to school from 7th to 12th grade. And so it's super special for me to have uh, the head of my high school here with me. And he's been a priest for 41 years and member of the Society of Mary. And so Bishop Conson, the way I want to start today is that I've read that you knew that you wanted to be a priest at a really young age back when you were a teenager. So kind of how did that come about? You know, I, I had a great uncle who was a priest out in Colorado, and he was kind of a talked about figure in our household. And you know, beyond that, I used to go to church in the morning to mass with my parents sometimes on weekdays. And I, it just began to seem more and more like this is something I might want to do. And I in those days, often you went away, as I did, in the ninth grade. I mean, you went into the seminary then. I remember ringing the doorbell at the rectory and saying to the priest who answered the door, I think I want to be a priest. What do I need to do? And he said, bring your parents. And so we sat down and talked, and he handed me a card and said, this is where you'll be going. It was all pretty simple, but 
you know, what do I take away from that? Well, yeah, most people don't make life decisions at 13. But the one thing I do take away from it is just, you know, you don't want to tell a young person that it's too early. You don't know what you're doing. You know, for me, it certainly worked out. Lots of other people went to the seminary and they did not stay. But, you know, I think it was, it was the right thing for me. And there was something happening there that I, I felt like uh, I, I wanted to spend a lifetime ministering to people and that I was really comfortable with this. So it took a long time after that to become a priest and, and to start out with the work. But I didn't doubt that that original inspiration was the right one. And I'm so grateful that my parents didn't either and grateful that that priest didn't turn me away and said, no, you're too young to know what you want to do. And I think that's a big takeaway. And I think there's an interesting dynamic there because you said one of the big takeaways is that they didn't turn me away and say that I'm too young to know what it is that I want to do. But at the same time, there are probably a lot of 13-year-olds who think they want to do something, but then they find out what it really actually is, and then they determine that they don't want to do it. So where's kind of the proper balance, if you will, if you're maybe that priest or if you're your parents back then in which you want to approach how to communicate with your child what they just talked about? Yeah, well, of course, you know, as somebody who's been a high school principal for 31 years, I certainly subscribe to the idea that when you're under 18, you kind of come under what your parents ultimately say. And so you do have to factor that in. I always cringed when I would hear parents say, in our household, we only get A's, or in our household, we only do such and such. And you need some household rules and balance. But I, it's also nice to hear that parents are kind of open to working with their kids as to what they might ultimately want to do and not just out of hand say, this can't work, this is never going to be the right thing for you. So in terms of communication, you know, yeah, I think all a young person can do is say, I think this is what I want to do and see whether your parents are willing to work with you on that. And before your time at Marist, long ago, we had a program where people would go out and spend a week. Actually, it used to be two weeks, and then got pared down to one week in a profession that they thought they might want to work in. And that gave them a taste of it. I remember a young guy who went out to work with a doctor, and he came back, and I said, how was it? And he said, wow, it was an eye-opener. He said, we were at the hospital at 6.45 in the morning, and I didn't get home till 8 o'clock at night. And he said, uh, I thought a lot of doctors maybe played more golf than that. And he found out that now they're actually working six to seven days a week and they're long days and they're hard days. And I don't think he ever became a doctor. So, you know, but I think communicating that with your parents and then working with them. And if your parents trying not to shut the door, I think I can remember parents who didn't want to hear the word philosophy. My child is going to study philosophy, he's going to study art. How can you make a living doing that? And of course, I know any number of people who, who have, actually. Right. Yeah. So you kind of brought up almost an example of the kind of a lead-in question. You talk about how like a doctor wanted to be a doctor and then they went and saw what it actually looked like and it was kind of unexpected and they kind of realized, okay, maybe I don't want to do this. So early on when you were studying to become a priest or maybe early on in your priesthood, was there anything that came as unexpected or maybe as like a biggest challenge that you didn't foresee? Well, you know, unexpected, yes. The only thing when you're 
13, you know much about what a priest does is what you see on the altar. And so you think that that public kind of very organized ministry is what a priest does. I knew a little bit more because I had sometimes gone along on visiting the sick with our local priests. So I knew the priests did that. I knew they went to the hospital, but I didn't know anything about counseling and uh, some of the scrapes that they help people to get out of and people get into. And so that was new. I think that you only see, you know, a limited amount of what anybody does in a given day and that eventually, yes, you do want to get that larger picture. Now, seminarians spend at least a year usually out in a parish or doing something where they get to see up close what a priest's life is like, you know, that you're going to get a call at two in the morning to go to the hospital. You know, I, I remember my first year as a priest, I got a call to go to a home where the son had just been electrocuted working on a high voltage line. And so I sat with the family that night doing not much but saying occasional prayer, drinking coffee, being there. But, you know, that was the sort of eye opener that the behind the scenes that you didn't necessarily get through textbooks. You just had to be there to learn what it was to minister to people at the moment. But as far as the biggest challenge goes, I guess for me was as a new priest, wondering like so many people, am I up to the task? You know, I mean, am I really going to be able to do this? My first assignment was in Lafayette, Louisiana. And I remember saying to myself, this is not going to go well. You know, you're not going to be a great success with these Cajun fiddlers and crawfishermen. But it turned out that they were so generous and so accepting that pretty soon I felt right at home. And a lot of that uncertainty and just self-doubt went away. But then it came back as soon as I got to Maris because I was 29 years old when I got there and 31 when I became the principal. And I, but I remember Father Hartnett saying to me, who was before me, we're going to go ahead and tell everybody that you're going to be the next principal. And it was November. And I said, really? You're going to do this now? And he said, yeah, think about it. He said, you can come back tomorrow and tell me whether you're ready. So I came back the next day and I said, I thought about it. I don't think I'm ready. And he looked at me and he smiled. And he said, if you wait until you're going to feel ready, you're never going to do this. Let's just do it. So we went out and made the announcement before the school body and this is your next principal here it is and life went on but i thought that was a lesson too you know and i always remember those words if you wait until you feel ready you may never do this you know i've had to do difficult things sometimes with people and tell them difficult things and it's true if you wait until you feel like you're ready to do that you're going to wait a long time uh, sometimes you have to just say i need to do this now because now is the right time and this is the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a, a huge lesson for so many people. And you kind of tied it all together there. You had this, you know, self-doubt, like, am I up to the task going down to Louisiana? Am I up to the task? Maybe getting up at 2 a.m. and meeting this family who's just had their son been electrocuted. And I think a lot of people have that feeling of self-doubt when they're thrown into something so early on. They're like, oh, I wasn't, didn't go through formal training for this particular thing. So I'm not up for the task. And now I'm being asked to be the principal and I'm not sure I'm up for this. How can we make sure that that feeling doesn't cripple people from taking a leap of faith? Like what's the conversation need to sound like to somebody younger 
who has that self-doubt to be like, don't hold yourself back from becoming who you have the potential to be. Right. Well, it certainly helps if you've got someone to, to talk with, especially someone who's got experience in the, the field and can share with you. I think most of us need to be told, you're okay. You're going to be fine. You've got what it takes. You just don't have the experience. And that's the one thing that, of course, a person's kind of craving at that point is how do I get that? Well, again, there is no way to get it except by being on the job and kind of going through it and finding out the kind of vagaries of a particular role. But uh, again, I think for religious people like myself, I mean, you, you, you also pray your way through it. I mean, you wind up praying to God that the Holy Spirit enlightens you on what to say and what to do in a given situation. And I used to say sometimes when I was embarrassed, you know, and I had that leadership class, I used to say to people, sometimes I say a quick, you know, I've been preaching for 42 years, but I say a quick prayer to the Holy Spirit before that what I hope to say is in fact what I do say, or that I can say something that is helpful and that I don't just wind up totally tongue-tied and unable to do anything that's that's meaningful. And of course, that hasn't happened over the years that I've been that tongue-tied, but you know, you've heard public speakers and you've been involved in this so long now yourself say that if you're not a little nervous when you start out, something's wrong. You know, I mean, you're always doing this for the first time in a, in a sense. And so, yeah, I think there is a healthy doubt sometimes and a healthy, uh, you know, shaking in your boots just a little bit before you go out to do something. But for those of us that say who are religious, you know, saying a prayer and then being pretty sure this is what I need to do. I need to get out there and, and go for it usually winds up pretty well. And as I say, if you've got a, somebody that you can reflect with, I was lucky enough at Marist. I had two former principals living in the house there, Father Brennan and Father McCormick. And I was able to go to them and sometimes and say, this is what it seems like I need to do, but I'm not real sure. And they were often able to reflect on that with me and, and help me out. Yeah. So like you said, when you were kind of put into the role of principal early on when you felt like you weren't ready, was there any kind of biggest learning experience or screw up that you had in the first couple of years that hmm. you had this sort of experience, you had this mistake, and you extracted a lesson from it that you've never forgotten. Yeah, I think so. A couple of things. Uh, I was the new guy on the block, and I probably minded the rules a little more carefully than they had been before me. And, and so that doesn't always endear you to the oldest senior students in the, the building. And so you have to get used to that at some point. And so I found out that after the first year of difficulty of where we didn't always agree, and I think sometimes it was, we were uh, disagreeing over some pretty basic things. I mean, I felt sometimes like some of the things that were being printed in publications were uh, demeaning and not humorous. And I remember having to speak to the students about that. You know, these were put downs and I'm sorry to have to be the one to weigh in, but I can't allow you to treat other students in this way. So we had our disagreements. But at the end of the year and the beginning of the following year, things went well. And I think I had to learn that 
you know, you get through the, the present difficulty, if you're pretty sure you're on the right path, you endure it. And then the next time around, it goes that much better. I had a year where a number of key staff uh, departed at the end of the year. And I thought, oh, gosh, what am I going to do next year? We're going to swimming in some pretty deep waters here, but we appointed new people and the year started off really well. And, and again, I think I needed to just find that out that you pick up and you move on and you don't brood over what may at the moment seem like a kind of seismic shift that you're going to survive it. And in an organization like that, I mean, we had enough talent. Yes, people were untried, but just like what I was saying, I suppose in my own case, you you put them in the role and you give them enough support and you're pretty sure ahead of time that they're up to the task, they're going to be all right. And sometimes you find out that it was the right thing. Sometimes you find out that the organization is breathing even a little bit more deeply now and is is very healthy <laughs> yeah no I, I like that i like that talking about enduring the the current challenge the best you can but knowing the next time around you can learn from it and just make sure it's not that same sort of challenge and uh for now i kind of want to switch tones a little bit because just kind of in general about best you podcast and how to get closer to the best version of yourself i always kind of visualize these different areas of life and and areas i want to improve upon personal development being one, health and fitness being another, professional life being one, and then spiritual life is is definitely one. And I haven't really had anybody on the show yet where we've talked about how to improve spiritually. And so that's why one of the reasons yeah. why I'm so excited. And I, I almost feel bad saying that. I feel guilty. I feel like I need to go have reconciliation for saying that because I've had like 200 episodes now and I haven't talked about spirituality yet. But to kind of kick off that conversation, I feel like there's people who distinguish the difference between the word religious and the word spiritual. And I want to ask you if you feel like there is a difference between someone who's religious and somebody who's spiritual. And if there is a difference, what is it? Well, I think we certainly operate as if those are two different things. We hear often people say, you know, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And so we have to assume that in most people's minds, uh, there is a, a difference. If I hear somebody say that they're spiritual, I want to know what that means. You know, I, I, just saying that doesn't tell me much. I want to know more than that. I want to know, is there some supernatural uh, part of your life that you experience? Are you talking about you know, a deity? Is, is, is that a part of your belief system? Do you pray? You know, what do you believe in? You know, are we talking just human characteristics, treating people fairly and so forth? Is that spirituality where you're coming from? Uh, is it taking yourself out to a, an isolated place and communing with nature? So I would want to know what that means, whereas I think religion, certainly for me, does probably mean you know, that you're a part of some movement, you're a part of some organized religion. And often when you hear the word religion today, you hear the word organized, and that's probably the religion certainly that I know. I'm not sure I know unorganized religion. To some extent, I would want to know when I talk to a person it's spiritual but not religious, like why not? Uh, in other words, is there a part of that 
that you haven't ever experienced? Is there a part of that? I think there may be cases where people have been turned off by some kind of experience they had with religion, with organized religion, uh, somebody in a church or a household that was maybe too overbearing in some way or another because of the religious beliefs in, in the household. But otherwise, I guess I'd want to know, uh, is there a fear of, you know, what religion could bring? Or, And I kind of think of it sometimes like, you know, if, if you want to be a good athlete and you tell me you're an athlete, but you don't participate in any competitive sports, then how do you know really that you're good athlete or what does the word athlete mean in that context and so it's a little bit like that I think because again religion has only been a help to me so I probably have a, a view of it that is benign and I, I see it as something that's constantly pushing me to be better to be mindful to be uh, aware of my shortcomings and, and what I need to do to address those. And I'm not sure I can do that in a vacuum. I, I can do it better if I'm in some space where uh, I've got something to bounce off of and something that's reminding me of what my responsibilities are and what my capabilities are. And I think that's a lot of what religion can do if it's healthy and, and if you've got a good relationship with it. Yeah, no, I really like it a lot. I think the word that you used a few moments back that almost summarizes kind of what you said is it gives you some organized place of practice, kind of. Because like you said, spirituality kind of leaves you in this space of vacuum, whereas organized religion, it orients your decision making a little bit and it gives you a little bit of a, a clear path in terms of what decisions to make, how to improve, and things like that. Do you think that that in and of itself, do you think sometimes people like being in a vacuum better, so they like saying that they're spiritual and not religious because they don't feel like they want to be confined to this organized space? It's possible, yeah, I, I think so. And sometimes there is something hmm, kind of fulfilling in a total freedom of responsibility, you know, if I have a day when I do really nothing except read and do exactly what I want to do, it's kind of pleasant. But I have to say, at the end of the day, when you take stock, it's not pleasant in every aspect because, you know, you, you probably can't say this is what I really did for anybody else. Or, I made the world a better place today. You have to have some leisure. There's no doubt about that. But again, I think most of us need some kind of a challenge, some kind of a buffer that we're up against that is, is helping us to be true to the very things that we said, even if it was only to ourselves, that we were going to do. And that short of that, as I say, there's no measurement, there's no way to know whether you are maxing out what you can be and, and both again for yourself and for others. Yeah. yeah, no, I think I think you hit the nail on the head. I think everybody in order to have a sense of meaning needs to have a sense of responsibility for something to move towards something. And that's what fuels us and fulfills us is the sense of 
moving towards something meaningful to us. And the vacuum, the ultimate freedom, the lack of responsibility always sounds super nice when you're, you know, caught in having to do X, Y, Z and A, B, C, D, E, F, G. But when people actually spend the time on a beach chair for week after week after week after week after week, they don't really, it's not all that it's made out to be. So I definitely think that having that kind of organization is better than people would expect it to be. Kind of, again, changing tone a little bit. I think the word belief is something that is loosely thrown around a little bit when it comes to religion or spirituality. And so I want to ask you, when you say you believe in God or when somebody else says they believe in God, what should that belief entail? Like, does it mean that I believe there is someone up there who is looking after me? Does it mean that, and just simply believing it, or does it mean that I act in a certain way that shows my belief? Or what does the word belief really mean? Well, yeah, you've certainly there's an intellectual assent, I guess you could say, and at the very basis of belief. If I believe in God, then yes, I've at least intellectually said there is this being that I believe I have some understanding of that I say I am somehow communicating with or committed to, just as if uh, I believe in being kind to animals, I have some sense of what that means. And therefore, again, even if personally and not publicly, I've made some kind of commitment to that, it's a system that, that I'm wedded to, and I can probably explain to you why that's important to me, because it's part of a core affiliation that I have, and it must be fairly meaningful to me. I mean, I I think there are probably plenty of people who believe in God who aren't into explaining that very carefully and wouldn't know how to explain that very carefully but it doesn't mean that their faith is invalid. So, yeah, I I think that's the intellectual part. And then you're asking, do you see that somehow? You have to hope so, and you have to hope that you see it, especially in the way that a person lives. You know, you have Jesus in the Gospels saying, when you pray, go into a room do it in private. There's no reason to stand in the public and let everybody see you as if that's going to be something laudable. But the Gospels do imply in every instance, if you really get this, if you're really faithful to what this is requiring, it it will be seen in the way you function vis-a-vis others. And that's where things like violence and just gross disrespect of somebody else doesn't stack up. So at some point, you have to be able to demonstrate with your life that this belief not only helps me, but it helps other people too. And I think we have to understand that faith, it's a personal dimension, but there's a communal dimension too. You know, I, I work out my salvation not just between me and God, but also in the context of the people around me. If I'm making them miserable, then there may be something wrong with my relationship to God because that's not supposed to happen. If I I really understand what I'm being asked to do and that faith has penetrated my inmost 
being. Yeah. Yeah. No. I like how you separate it out between the intellectual thing and then actually putting into motion, putting into action, because I do think that it's really important to just separate the two. And as you said earlier, I don't think it's necessarily means somebody doesn't believe if they can't describe it and put it into actual words for somebody else to grasp because it's so, something that is so challenging to put into words and to describe. And so kind of on that same note, to stay kind of with the heavy stuff, it's so impossible to grasp the unknown, right? It's impossible to grasp what God actually is, who God is, what infinite means, what that actually looks like. So for somebody who feels lost in terms of trying to grasp what all that means, what are some ways that you could help somebody else grasp? Like, what does infinite mean? What does God mean? I'm not even sure how to really target you in the right direction, to be honest with you, how to organize and orient you down the path of answering. But just kind of run with this idea of how it's so hard to grasp the unknown. Yeah, You know, I guess I would try to make a few recommendations on that. One is I think you have to grapple with it. You have to recognize that this is a really big topic. It's a really big area. And you're not going to be able to just sit back and whistle for five minutes and come up with all the answers that you need. You know, every time I read science, it's more of an eye-opener than the last time. You know, now they're between 100 and 200 billion galaxies you know i'm thinking i can't i can't fathom 200 billion galaxies but i have to try to wrestle with it to try to get some sense of what that may mean and then of course what does that mean for my faith you know what if a universe is that big and if it's that dynamic if it's constantly changing and expanding you know what does that mean for my faith and who is this god who somehow manages all of this or somehow has dominion over it so i have to wrestle with that and again wrestling to me then is going to mean a number of things it's going to mean a praying it's going to mean i'm probably talking to somebody else or kind of somehow see what somebody else's wisdom is going to tell me about how they take these great mysteries and see if they can unravel them and make sense out of them and make the one fit with the other. How do I take this vast scientific repository and mystery and put it together with my faith repository and mystery and make the two of them coincide? I think it's possible, but you know, for me, it's a lifetime's work. And therefore, I would certainly tell somebody, whatever you do, don't walk away from it. Because in a day or a week or a year, it didn't all fit together for you. Keep working at it. Keep trying to make these pieces fit because it is big. And it does have to do with very personal very challenging kinds of topics that we don't normally talk about in easy society. And you've got to read. You you really have to read. You know, we're not doing a lot of that. We're not doing a lot of going off on our own and spending time alone, making a retreat, whether that's two days or a week, trying to get everything else out of the way and spending time, again, from a religious point of view, with you and God 
but even if it's not in that context, just trying to let your head be cleared of so many other things that would normally be impinging and trying to say, I'm here for a purpose and the purpose is I need to get more clarity on what I really believe about X. But I think if anybody who thinks they're going to get easy answers to things in the world that we're in, which is pretty complex and getting more so all the time without grappling with it somehow, it won't happen. Yeah, no, I like that a lot. I think just the message of it's not supposed to be easy. You're never going to have all the answers. You need to just continue to grapple and wrestle with it is one of the ideas that just needs to be heard more and more and more because people, for whatever reason, feel like they just need to understand things in order to pursue it. And so that almost like you use the word clarity and how I talk about getting closer to the best version of yourself. I always talk about how step number one is trying to gain as much clarity as you can of what the best version of yourself looks like. And it's not easy. It's a big topic, right? It's a big thing, but you have to have some sort of clarity on on what that person looks like. And then after that, you have to start taking action and trying to reverse engineer that person into reality. And so in terms of kind of bringing it to the topic of the podcast of best version of yourself, what does maybe Christianity or Catholicism say in regards to how an individual should go about improving themselves? Well, the Gospels are all about conversion. And uh, again, I think sometimes when we think of conversion, we think of that as a dramatic event or a one-time event. But Jesus intends for us to be constantly converting, you know. So so every day is a new Lent, you know. I mean, every, every day we're trying to, be, in your terms, be a little better than we were the day before, you know. And, and that's where the challenge comes in. That's where I say, that's for me, that's where having religion as part of my life, it, it helps because I have a baseline that I'm trying to uh, meet all the time and maybe even exceed if <laughs> that's a little bit ambitious. But, you know, it, I have a marker. I know what somebody living a good Christian life looks like. It's Jesus. And, and so therefore, I have to keep sizing myself up and seeing where I'm lacking and then trying to improve on that. I mean, I have a spiritual director, a priest that I see every six to eight weeks, and I go to confession, I take stock of my life, and I I try to see what needs improvement. We talk about that. And that's not the only way of doing this, but it is one way. And then, you know, there is kind of a daily personal examination that often people will do. And uh, again, I think that can be very helpful to do it in the context of prayer. I remember seeing my dad kneeling next to the bed at night saying prayers. I'm thinking, wow, this guy's 60 some years old, you know, and he's still doing that. It made a great impression, you know, I mean, and why is he doing that? Well, because he's not perfect and he knows it and he's saying, help me, help me get through tomorrow, whatever tomorrow may bring. Help me raise this you know, impertinent son of mine. So I think all of that is about constant conversion and how, how we go about that. And again, different, different ways of, of doing that. But yeah, if we're not trying to be our best selves, uh, we've kind of missed the point somewhere along the line. Yeah. I really like that word conversion because to put it in a practical pictorial view It's like in order to get to a a better version of yourself, a better version of yourself is essentially an elevated version of yourself that 
maybe has a particular skill, some sort of knowledge, some sort of experience that you don't currently have. And so you're looking to close that gap. And I think to kind of bring it full circle, going back to the beginning, in order to try to and extract a skill a knowledge or experience that you don't yet have, you have to put yourself into scenarios or circumstances in which you don't have those skills, knowledge, or experience yet. You have to throw yourself into something that you're not ready for yet so that you can extract the skill, knowledge, or experience from that and then therefore elevating the version of yourself. I would agree. Yeah. And, and uh, again, in my context, I that's where I find the Gospels helpful because, of course, daily I'm being exposed to that and I'm being reminded of what the ideal is and how far I need to work yet to get to that ideal and where I'm falling short. And, you know, that's, again, really helpful to have some kind of a of a marker to be able to, uh, to say, this is where I'm trying to go. And of course, from Catholic point of view, from a Christian point of view, it's not only just to be my better self today, but it's ultimately to have salvation for the long haul. And that's kind of a double meaning and a double whammy there that you want to be your best self for the sake of those around you today, but you also want to get to heaven. <laughs> that can be a powerful incentive. Yeah, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. So to kind of take it to more of a about you, so you've been a priest for 41 years and priests can be held to a higher standard or looked at as this person does the right thing 100% of the time. Obviously, it's not the case. Priests are still human. But do you ever still feel this like, oh, like I wish I could do that or I wish I could say that, but like I'm a priest, so I got to hold myself back now because people are looking at me this particular way. Do you still kind of ever have that? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You know, I think the, sure, I mean, I, there is a certain behavior that's expected from somebody who's in a public role of uh, leadership and example, you know, and so I would be careful not to say something that was just outlandish or provocative or politically divisive and, and so forth, you know, I, I, I think um, I'll profane. Uh, so careful not to do that because I understand, I think, what a consistent example means and how important it is to people to have something to look to that by and large is the same today as it was yesterday. But there are moments when I feel it would be interesting just to step out for a minute, you know, I mean, and I only think of that particularly when I'm, sometimes when I'm driving, I, I I think I'll stop for a cup of coffee and nobody's going to know who I am. And there is something a little bit, well, kind of a little bit of relief in that, but only for that brief amount of time. I mean, the rest of the time, I understand that I've been given a particular role, a particular responsibility, and I have agreed to it very wholeheartedly myself. Therefore, it doesn't make sense for me to be in contradiction to what I have said I was going to do and and who I said I was going to be. Yeah, I like that. I like that last part a lot, making sure that you act in alignment with who you said you're going to be and and what you said you're going to do. I like that a lot. You can have a couple of personal friends that you can probably, you know, be a little bit more at ease with. 
too, you know, and I think that's important for all of us that uh, while we do have a public persona, you don't want to be a totally 180 degree different person when you're with those personal friends, but you can probably be a little bit more at ease. Yeah, yeah I'm sure I'm sure that helps. Well, down to the last couple of questions here. Um, I kind of already briefed this first question uh, a little bit earlier, but I believe that in order to get closer to the best version of ourselves, we kind of have to visualize or gain clarity on what that person is capable of, what that person looks like, and then try to take action in order to make that person a reality. And so I found that this question really helps me and, and really helps some people that I work with. And it's a question I'm going to ask for you is, is there a particular skill, piece of knowledge or experience that the best version of yourself has that you don't currently have? Um, you know, I think probably trying to, um, Trying to see what my needs are and my challenges are in a scope larger than just the next day or two probably would be something I would like. It would be good for me and something that I work at to try to take a longer view. What is next week, next month going to look like? What am I likely to encounter? And how do I get ahead of that? How do I be proactive and not reactive? And what sort of perspective do I need? And what is my experience telling me that I should be aware of, that I should be uh, expecting and, and, and uh, ready for? I, I feel like uh, I'm, after being a principal for 31 years, I'm okay at reacting, but am I very good at forecasting and kind of seeing where I should be? Because of my leadership role, do I see what that's calling me to do, requiring me to do without anybody asking for it? You know, I, mean, I think that's maybe what I worked on. I like that one a lot. I don't I haven't really heard anybody communicate it like that before. I think that's I think that's unique. I think that's cool. Uh, but before the last question, Bishop Conson, I just want to acknowledge you first for Going back when you were 29 and having the courage and the faith to be able to step into this role that you felt like you weren't necessarily ready for yet, I think that's something everybody can relate to. And some people haven't taken that leap of faith. Some people have, and they know how difficult that is. So I want to make sure I acknowledge you for that and then also acknowledge you for, like you kind of mentioned in the end of your, your last answer, is for being okay with it might be a little bit more difficult, but I'm going to live in alignment with who I said I'm going to be and what I said I was going to actually do. Because I think that in order to be the best version of ourselves, we have to be a person of alignment with those few things. And I think a lot of times it's easy to not be. It's easy to, it's easy to not live in alignment with those couple of things. So I think that's... I think that's probably what the integrity means, right? That people have an understanding of who you are in the world and kind of what, what you do and your place in it. And when you do something that's at too much variance with that, I think that's where the question of integrity comes in. You led people to believe that they could expect such and such and such and such from you. Just isn't to say you dare never veer from that, but you do so at some peril, I think. And, and, and so some aspect of personal integrity is that people ought to know what to expect more or less when they're they're dealing with you yeah yeah definitely definitely i completely agree well the last question here is 
I think that getting closer to the best version of ourselves is a constant journey. I don't think that we're ever at that best version of ourselves. And then I also think it's a unique journey. I think the way that I get to get closer to the best version of myself is gonna be a little bit different than the way that you get closer to the best version of yourself. And so for you personally, if there are three things that you can currently do or currently work on to get closer to that best version of yourself, what are those three things that you could currently do or work on? Well, you know, again, I, I'm, I'm in a unique situation to some extent. I mean, I have vows and I have a whole lot of Catholic teaching. And so in that sense, I have already a structure that I can look at each day that says to me, you know, this is where you belong and this is what you're trying to shape your life around. And so that's a big help to have sort of an external bulwark that that tells me a lot of how I need to be acting and and what I should be be doing. Uh, I find ways to probably to relax when I'm not on. And I think that's important. I think people who are not able to relax and find a way to find some enjoyment outside of their professional role, you know, again, I think there may be some danger there sometimes, you know, it's great to be committed to your professional role, but but at some point you need a little bit of relief. My, I owe a lot to my mother that she used to say, life's just what you make it. And, you know, I think she was good at, at finding ways to, uh, to make the ordinary enjoyable and, and to have a little something extra there too. And I think the other thing is even at my age, I see traits and talents in other people that I find attractive and I'd like to be able to do that. Uh, and so I try to figure out, you know, what what is that person doing and how could I be able to do that too? And what should I be taking away from this encounter? How can I have this be constructive for, for me? So I think those are three things that I, I do that probably um, help me. But it certainly hasn't helped me to reach the zenith. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a day at a time. Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Well, Bishop Conson, really appreciate your time. That, that's all we got today. That was awesome. Great. Thank you, Nick. Always good to see you. You take care. Of course. There you have it. I hope you enjoyed this super special and unique episode with Bishop Townsend. I've never had someone on the show to talk about how to grow your spiritual life or your religious life. So this one was so fascinating and I hope it gets your wheels turning. Make sure you share this episode with a friend or family member who you think would get something from it and be inspired by it. If you're out there and you have some relationship to Marist, be sure to send it to another Marist family or friend. You know they're gonna wanna hear it. This is one they won't wanna miss. If you liked the show, be sure to leave it a rating and review on iTunes and let me know what you thought about it. I also post a video episode every single week along with the show notes, and you can find it at nickcarrier.com slash podcast. Remember to step into situations that you don't feel ready for. Bishop Conson didn't feel ready to be a principal of a school at the age of 31, but he had faith and did it anyway, and he grew from it, and the same can happen for you. Remember to be a person of integrity, a person who lives in alignment with who they say they're going to be and with what they say that they're going to do. For now, it's time. It's time to take action. Spend the time grappling with yourself about the unknown, about your belief or the lack thereof in God, and be okay with the grappling. Be okay with the fact that you don't have all the answers. This whole thing called life is a journey. We'll never have all the answers to it. It's a constant wrestling match back and forth, so have faith and stay the course. 
because that's what's going to allow you to get closer and closer to your best you. 